title of today's message is The First Mark of a True Church. The First Mark of a True Church. And we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 1, mainly verse 8, and drawing a lot of application from that. But to begin with, I'd like to read the first 10 verses of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, So say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that ye have received, let him be accursed. I'll stop there in verse 9. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, he vehemently asserted that the gospel was of supreme importance. So much so that he said, if anyone comes to you, if I come to you, as the Apostle Paul, if an angel comes to you and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. For emphasis, Paul repeats himself and says again, it says, as I said before, so now I say again, if anyone comes to you and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. The Greek word for accursed is anathema, and it means to be doomed for destruction. The content of the gospel is so important in the life of the church that the Apostle Paul uses the strongest language possible to exhort the Christians in Galatia to refuse any false gospel. And so as Bobby read from the London Baptist Confession of Faith, we are looking at the church and we're considering a topic as it relates to the church today. And in your bulletin there, you have the sermon outline notes. You also have that text from the London Baptist Confession. And it says that all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel, professing the faith of the gospel, and an obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation, which means unholy living, sinful conduct, are and may be called visible saints, and of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. So I highlighted there the faith of the gospel and and the word foundation. The faith of the gospel refers to the content of the gospel. What is it that we believe about the good news? What is the good news? Without the faith of the gospel, without this content to the gospel, there are no saints to constitute local churches. There is is no church if there is no true gospel. So, let us hone in on this faith of the gospel and why it is paramount to a church being a true church. Now, initially when I started considering what to teach on, I was going to start by talking about church polity and church government, things like that. And then I went back a step and said, well, let me start with 
um, what the reformers identified as the three marks of a true church. And then I went back and said, let's just focus on the first mark of a true church. What is it that is the most foundational to a church being a church? And as we are here thinking about these things, as we prayed earlier, thinking about asking the Lord for wisdom and for direction, I think this is profitable for us. So, to begin, let's consider the content of the gospel. Paul charged the, the Christians in Galatia to refuse any false gospel. Therefore, they must know what the true gospel is. The gospel is the good news. It is identified in Scripture as the good news of the kingdom, the good news of grace, the good news of God, the good news of peace, and even the good news of your salvation. However, the most used description of the good news is the gospel of Christ. Mark 1.1. I'm going to read through some text so you don't have to turn there. I just want to show you how the gospel of Christ is the most used description. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Romans 1.9. The gospel of His Son. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans 15.19. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Romans 15.29. I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.12 Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.18 I may make the gospel of Christ without charge. 2 Corinthians 2.12 When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The glorious gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.13 The gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.14 Preaching the gospel of Christ. And from our text today, Galatians 1.7, there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Manifestly, then, the gospel is about Jesus Christ. And it's not simply that Jesus died and rose again. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they would affirm those things. It's not simply that Jesus is also God. The Roman Catholic Church would affirm that. The gospel, the message about Christ, must encompass both his person and and his work. The good news of Christ is a message of good tidings that centers on who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Now concerning his identity, I'm not going to spend much time on that right now. Jesus Christ is the God-man, the eternal, unchangeable Son of God, very God of very God, John 1.1, 1, 1, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 13.8. Many passages in the scripture speak of this. To reject the true identity of Jesus is to reject the good news and a gospel which presents Jesus as less than God as a false gospel. <clears throat> I'm not going to defend that point today, simply state it and move on to some other implications. But the gospel is also the good news of salvation for sinners. It is therefore not just about the identity of Christ, but the work that he did and is doing to save sinners. In Christ's great work of redemption, his life, death, and resurrection, he secured the salvation of his elect. The Bible teaches us that the gospel of Christ includes the fact that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.23 It teaches us that Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep. John 10.15 It teaches us that all that the Father gives to Christ will come to him. John 6, 37. The Bible teaches us that no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
John 6.44. It teaches us that a man must be born again in order to be saved. John chapter 3. It teaches us that those who become believers are not born of the will of man, a decision, but are born of God. John 1.13. The Bible teaches us that repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, which are necessary for salvation, in fact, are gifts from God given to the elect according to God's grace. 2 Timothy 2.25 speaks of the fact that God may grant repentance. And from the text that Bobby read this morning, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, tell us that the faith that a believer has is a gift from God. And we may not even boast in the faith we have in Christ. So the good news, the gospel, is that salvation is of the Lord, not man. All right, as we look, as we consider Paul's charge to the churches in Galatia to reject any false gospel, we need to understand what the gospel is. Every aspect of salvation is of God. The gospel is the message of God's salvation. Stephen Lawson comments and says, The central truth of God's saving grace is succinctly stated in the assertion, Salvation is of the Lord. This strong declaration means that every aspect of man's salvation is from God and is entirely dependent upon God. End quote. The only thing you bring to your salvation, the only thing you contribute, is your wicked sin, your unrighteousness, your iniquity, your filth, your transgression of God's law. That's the only thing you bring to the equation. The only thing that you can take credit for is your sin. Salvation is of the Lord, not of man. In short, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what is referred to as the doctrines of grace, or dare I say, Calvinism. Now Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from the 19th century, put it quite frankly. And if you get what he's saying, I think you'll understand. There is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified, unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. Now many today might get very concerned about that statement. What Charles Spurgeon is saying is, listen, the content of the gospel is summarized by the doctrine of grace. It's summarized and represented by Calvinism. John Calvin's message is only the gospel in as much as it conforms to scripture. And what Spurgeon is saying is, listen, you cannot preach Christ and Him crucified unless you preach what, what we call Calvinism. And it's the same Calvinism that in His day as it is in ours. It's the doctrines of grace. It's the message that Jesus Christ is the Lord of salvation. You cannot save yourself. You can do nothing of your own accord to reach heaven. You have no hope for your salvation unless God in His mercy reaches down to you and changes your heart and gives you repentance and faith to call upon the name of the Lord. That is the gospel. The gospel of Christ contains the great truth of salvation. It is this truth that the church is entrusted with. 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It is the gospel of Christ and the gospel of Christ alone that has the power to save. Only the gospel of Christ can save. It is the gospel of Christ that the church is entrusted with. It is the gospel of Christ that Paul warned the churches in Galatia to guard strictly and strenuously that if anyone bring any perversion to that gospel, that the curse of God would be upon them. 
That is the content of the gospel. It is the gospel of grace. And I would love to spend more time defending that point. That would be perhaps for another sermon. I need to build upon that and get into some application here from Paul's words to the churches in Galatia. The gospel is the message of salvation from the Lord. It is not a message of salvation with man's help and God's help. And we'll get into that a little bit here in a minute. So that's the content of the gospel. It is the gospel of grace. Point number two under the heading of doctrine is the foundational nature of the gospel. If the content of the gospel is what we have seen, that is the work of Christ in his death, his life, death, and resurrection to save the elect, to save his sheep, to die for his sheep, that he secured their salvation in his work of redemption, what may we learn about the foundational nature of the gospel? Now, the reformers during the Reformation identified three marks of a true church. And the Belgic Confession summarizes this view best when it lists the three marks as follows. Number one, a mark of a true church is that the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein. Number two, she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments. And number three, church discipline is exercised. So the first and foundational mark of the church is that the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein. John Hammond, who's a, a modern author, who um, gives us some good insight into the historical understanding of the Reformation, says that John Calvin was willing to call a group a true church even if they did not understand all of God's word aright, as long as they preserved and preached the pure gospel message. Here we encounter the true sine qua non of the church. If the church loses the gospel message, a group of people is no longer a true church. It may be a religious society or club, but it is not a church. For God's called out people are called out by the gospel and come in response to the gospel. End quote. The gospel truly is the sine qua non of the church. That means that it's absolutely essential. You cannot have a church without the gospel. It is absolutely essential and indispensable to the church. It's the foundation. Without it, a congregation is not a congregation of the one true God. They may be a congregation of people meeting together. They may be a congregation who claims the name of Christ. But without the pure doctrine of the gospel, they are not a congregation or church of God. Of course, when Tyndale translated the Bible into English, he translated that word ecclesia as congregation. Um, now, all, most of the translations, even some after his, before the King James used the word church, that's not the most important part. The most important thing is to understand that it is, in fact, a congregation, a group of people called out from the world that meet together to sing praises to the Lord, to worship him, to read his word. Um, of course, we're talking about the local church, um, as from the confession that Bobby read, the paragraph there. There's the universal church, which is all the elect from all time. But as we consider a congregation of people meeting together, without the gospel, they are not a congregation of God. When Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, he described them as follows. Those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The congregation of God is made up of those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this calling upon the Lord comprehends both his identity and his work. One must call upon the true Christ, not a false Christ. One must have the true gospel, not a false gospel, lest the church be no church at all. And now the reformers equated the word of God with the pure doctrine of the gospel. So if you look at some other reformers like Martin Luther, he said the first mark of a church is the sole 
uninterrupted, infallible, or the sole interrupted, excuse me, infallible mark of the church has always been the word. Um, Robert Godfrey, and I'm going to come back to this, and we're going to try to draw some application out here, notes that without this mark, there can be no, there cannot be any hope for the others. So the reformers saw the word and the gospel as synonymous. If the church has the word, they have the true gospel. The Roman Catholic Church that had rejected the true gospel was not preaching the word, and therefore was a false church. And the gospel message of the word was always salvation by grace alone. Now, there may not be much argument among evangelicals concerning the statement that the pure doctrine of the gospel is the first mark of a true church. However, let's now consider some application and see what we may draw from this. Since it is true that the gospel is the foundational to the church, it is the foundation of the church, so much so that the Apostle Paul pronounced a curse upon any who would preach another gospel. Galatians 1.8 If any pre- an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. This is strong language. All right, now, we can read that. We have to apply that. And evangelicalism needs to apply that. So let's consider some application from this. I want to look at three main points of application. One, Roman evangelicalism. Two, what is a foundation for? And three, the pride of man and false conversion. All right, so number one, Roman evangelicalism. Now, the reformers were battling many errors of Rome. However, the heart of the doctrine that Rome erred on was justification by grace through faith. Now, the battle cry may have been sola scriptura, because you had to go back to scripture for all these things, but the doctrine upon which the Reformation hinged was justification by grace through faith. Three of the five solas highlight this point of contention, by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, and even the fourth, to the glory of God alone, all speak to the fact that salvation is of God and God alone, therefore he gets all the glory. And of course, of course, sola scriptura, we know that we have to go back to scripture to get this message. Now the Roman Catholic Church had abandoned the gospel of grace for a gospel of works. Now I submit that all false gospels, including the one from Rome, are, are influenced by a concept called Pelagianism. Now, track with me here for a minute. Now, Cicero was a Roman politician who lived 100 years before Christ. Okay, 100 years before Christ. And he said this. He said that men should thank God for material prosperity, for the blessings in their life of food and wealth and family and those things. But they should not thank God for their own moral virtue, for that's their own doing, Cicero said. All right, now, that that type of thinking, B.B. Warfield um, considered Pelagianism to be the rehabilitation of that heathen view of the world, that man can take credit for good, some good that he does in and of himself. And Warfield went on to note that there are two, only fundamentally only two doctrines of salvation, that salvation is from God and that salvation is from ourselves. The former is the doctrine of common Christianity. The latter is the doctrine of universal heathenism, end quote. There's only two, way, two views of two doctrines of salvation. It's of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, or it's of man. Now, the Church of Rome abandoned the pure doctrine of the gospel when she embraced principles of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, which teach that man can contribute some good to his salvation. At the Council of Trent, held in the 16th century, Rome officially abandoned the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They believed that there was something in man 
capable of moving him closer to God in the process of salvation. Now, the reformers, true to Paul's instructions in Galatians, had to reject such a message and its messengers. The reformers said, Paul says, if any preach unto you another gospel, let him be accursed. And the reformers took that text and applied it to their times and said, the gospel from Rome is not the true gospel. It's a false gospel. Now, again, despite some troubling attempts to unify evangelicalism in Rome, um, despite that, which is a gross error, there are many evangelicals that would be on board with this. Hey, we've got to reject the false gospel of Rome. That's, that's a gospel of works. However, there is an equally troubling reality occurring. And Kevin Reed reminds us that we must not stop with Rome when considering how the gospel has been perverted. Reed goes on to note that, quote, many modern evangelical churches have embraced the false gospel of decisionalism, end quote. The gospel that, you, that Jesus died to make salvation possible and that now you decide if his work of redemption applies to you. That is a false gospel. Michael Horton provides some commentary um, on this and the current state of many so-called churches. I try not, try not to do too many quotes, but this is really important because he's drawing our attention to, to something that I think uh, we need to take a step further with application. So listen to this. Entire denominations that were committed confessionally to the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone have ended up adopting in actual practice a Pelagian message. When evangelicals deny human depravity and inability, affirm that human beings cooperate in their own conversion by the use of their free will, and view salvation as a project of moral improvement, they are further afield, they're further away from the gospel than Rome has ever been. That's, that's a, a, a serious charge against evangelicalism, that they're more off from the gospel than the Roman Catholic Church has ever been. And Robert Godfrey again notes that Calvin would no doubt lament the sad state of much of Protestantism today. Okay, so if that's the case, if Paul tells us, listen, if anyone preaches another gospel than what you've received, let him be accursed. And we see that many even Reformed leaders are acknowledging that there's a false gospel out there. There is this gospel of semi-Pelagianism, of Arminianism, that is a perversion of the gospel, further afield than Rome. Why is there not more outspoken resistance to this false gospel of Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Arminianism among conservative evangelicals today? Why is this text not being applied in the churches? Now, Kevin Reed posits the following possibility. All right, this is a... He says, so why does Godfrey, and he's, quote, he's, he's responding to Godfrey's quote that, hey, you know, Calvin would lament the sad state of the church today. Why does Godfrey let evangelicals off with only a mild critique in comparison to the, his pointed criticisms of Rome? Why do we look back at Rome and say, hey, Rome had it wrong, a false gospel, and today we could be just as far afield from Rome, but yet we're not going to call out our, the Arminian gospel for what it is. He says, surely what is good for the popish goose should be good for the evangelical gander. Why not apply the same historic measures to both Rome and evangelicalism? One suspects that contemporary evangelical writers, all right, here's, here's his theory, are reticent to press, press the issue more forcefully because of the embarrassing implications. But a due regard for the marks of the church would not only unchurch, unchurch Rome, but a major part of modern evangelicalism. That prospect is so startling that even the most conservative and reformed theologians in our day 
cannot bring themselves to consider the idea. That may be the case. It may be that the fear of man and the fear of ruffling feathers has prevented many preachers and teachers from speaking with the clarity of Spurgeon and Warfield and others. Someone might say, oh, you know what? I don't want to come across as an elitist, right? I don't want to be seen as an elitist, and I have the truth, and everybody's got it wrong. Listen, folks, the Apostle Paul is not teaching elitism in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed, holding, the true gospel, holding to the true gospel of grace and denouncing Arminianism is not elitism. In fact, elitism is the view that one group is superior to the rest in terms of ability or qualities. You know what's elitist? The Arminian gospel. Because it tells you that one class of man is better than those who haven't chosen Christ because they've chosen him out of their own free will, out of their own moral virtue. Paul isn't teaching elitism in Galatians 1, chapter 8 and verse 9 when he demands that we contend for the one true gospel. He's teaching Christianity 101. He's teaching the basics of the faith. And let's return for a moment to Spurgeon in the hopes of learning from him the importance of calling a spade a spade. Spurgeon preached the gospel of Christ. He took seriously the words of the Apostle Paul to reject any gospel contrary to the one he received. Because of this, Spurgeon was forced to reject the false gospel of Arminianism, which denies the doctrines of grace and makes man the final determiner of salvation. Final quote here. And this one's in your bulletin as well as the one previously from Reed. Spurgeon says, I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross, nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called, and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel, Spurgeon said, I abhor. Such a gospel, I abhor. I hate it, Spurgeon said. It is a false gospel. Spurgeon could call Arminianism heresy. And he said, what is the heresy of Arminianism but the addition of something to the work of the Redeemer? And yet, get this, Spurgeon could call the Arminian his brother. Now, how could he do that? Perhaps it is because a man may in fact trust in Jesus, may in fact embrace the true gospel of grace in his heart, but be confused and deceived by the preaching of a false gospel. Such a saint, however, would not make the Arminian church a true church. For the pure doctrine of the gospel must be preached as well as believed. If simply the conversion of one or two or ten or twenty members would make an assembly a true church of God, regardless of the doctrine being taught, then we could all simply go down the road here and sit in the Jehovah's Witness meeting and say, well, now this is a congregation of the Lord because there are believers here. Such a congregation does not become a church simply because there is a believer in attendance. A true child of God can, and I believe there were many that were trapped in Rome during the Reformation. There may be a true believer of God today in the Roman Catholic Church, but the charge to such a person would be come out from among them and be separate. The charge would be the same today for a true saint in a church 
preaching the false gospel of Arminianism. This balances the severity and grace, right? Paul, Paul's words are severe. If anyone preaches a false gospel, let him be accursed. We need to apply that in all its severity. But yet we are also to have grace to the sinner, to the individual person that is trapped. And we'll look at Ephesians here in a minute when um, Paul talks about those who, have been, who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I believe there can be true saints that have been trapped in these systems of false doctrine. But the charge to them has come out and be joined to a true church. A church that preaches the pure doctrine of the gospel. If Spurgeon is right, and I believe he is, then any so-called attempt to be united with Arminianism is a fool's errand. If the distinguishing mark of the church is the pure preaching of the gospel, how is it that we can call an Arminian church a true church of God? I grant this is not an easy topic for many in evangelicalism today. Spurgeon's words would likely not be embraced by many today who are even serious Reformed Christians. However, we must not shy away from critical thinking simply because the results may be unpleasant. We have to apply Paul's words. This is not my words. It's not Spurgeon's words. This is the word of the Lord. And he says, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. Now, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he noted that immature saints can be tossed to and fro. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, well, let me start in verse 12, why he gave the the teachers and prophets for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or mature man, so we can reach maturity, and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to, to deceive. Human cunning, craft, deceitful schemes, the philosophy of men, this, these are all hallmarks of a false gospel. And Paul says, you are to teach the people, the church is to be built up, that we may reach maturity and be free from these tendencies to be tossed to and fro. So, I grant that there may be a true Christian, and there may be many true Christians in churches that preach the false gospel. And it may be difficult to see the heart of a professing Christian who attends a false church. Such a person may be a Calvinist in his heart, despite being carried about by human cunning and winds of false doctrine. What is not difficult, however, is to discern the preaching of the congregation. Thus, we ought to reject an Arminian congregation as a true church, even while maintaining that an individual therein could be genuinely converted, despite that false gospel. They could be converted because the Lord used the reading of his word to call them out from their sin. And if you got down to it and they were honest with themselves, they would say, I've contributed nothing to my salvation. It was God and God alone who opened my eyes and gave me faith. But if the pure doctrine of the gospel is not taught, it is not a church. Again, the presence of believers in and of themselves do not make the true church. The pure doctrine of the gospel of the grace of Christ must be found therein. Since this is the case, the charge is that all churches of Christ must emphasize the true gospel. Let pastors and teachers preach the gospel with boldness and use commensurate boldness in denouncing false gospels. The gospel of grace must again thunder from congregations if we are to see the revival that we prayed for this morning. All right, if if the gospel is the first and most foundational mark of the church, 
If it's the gospel of grace, ought not preachers be more explicit about what this gospel is? Why shy away? It's one of the saddest realities that so many in evangelicalism today abhor the gospel of grace. They abhor it. They hate it. Therefore, preachers who believe in that gospel themselves are often hesitant to be bold for the fear of man. But if someone will not receive the doctrines of grace, then they're still in the, ball, the gall of bitterness. There should be none of this talk, oh, these are our convictions here at this church, or, or this is our understanding, this is our leaning, but you know, we, we have those leanings, but there are other brothers who have different leanings. That is not what the Apostle Paul says. He says, if anyone brings you another gospel, that person is accursed. Such a softening, such a, well, you know, yeah, we hold to the doctrines of grace here, that's our understanding, but, but others don't. That's not what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. He's calling us to contend for the gospel of grace. Such a softening gives room for the acceptance of the false gospel of Arminianism. When it comes to the gospel of grace, we are to give no quarter. We are to show no mercy when it comes to the doctrine of the gospel of grace. We are not to allow any perversion to the gospel. I don't care, if, really, if you use the terms Calvinism and Arminianism. If you can do so without any degree of lessening the, per, the perspicuity or the clearness of the fact that what we nowadays call Calvinism is the gospel and Arminianism is a false gospel. The pure doctrine of the gospel must be preached. Again, it's more than just that Jesus died and rose from the dead. The Mormons teach that. Unless the pure doctrine of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone be preached, there is no gospel. It's not good news that Jesus came to die for no one in particular and that those who are, who are saved may end up in hell. And there could possibly be no one in heaven other than maybe the saints that are mentioned in the Bible as dying and going there. For in Arminian theology, there is no elect of God that will undoubtedly reach glory. There is only the free will of man that can reject salvation and thwart the plan of Christ in redeeming his sheep. Such a gospel is a falsehood and a perversion of the glorious plan of redemption found in the pages of Scripture. With Spurgeon, I do say that such a gospel I abhor. Such a gospel I abhor, and the churches of Christ need to stand upon that foundation of the pure doctrine of the gospel. Now, application point number two, these two will be shorter. Speaking of foundation, what is a foundation for? All right, the second point of application focuses on the gospel as the foundation of the church. It's the first thing that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. It was so foundational, so supreme, he said, listen, if you get this wrong, you get everything else wrong. If someone preaches any perversion to this message, let them be anathema. It's truly noted as the first mark of a true church. Without it, there is no church. Without the foundation of the gospel, you cannot even begin to move on to a proper understanding of Christian living. Now, the gospel... And as I've been arguing, Calvinism is the basics of Christianity. It is the foundation. It is the starting point. To start with a false gospel, Arminianism, is to build on the wrong foundation. Every doctrine and teaching that follows from that foundation will be perverted in some respect as it relates back to the foundation. Now, a foundation, I'd like to know, is meant to be built upon. All right, the foundation is not meant to remain alone. All right, think about a construction crew. You've driven by, you've seen construction crews, you've seen people building a house. Imagine a construction crew that lays a foundation. All right, they, I mean, they put work into that. They got their measurements right. They lay the concrete, the pillars, whatever. I don't know all the, the terms there, but they lay a good foundation. And they put a lot of work into that, and they're taking this seriously. Because they know 
They need to get the foundation right. If you don't get the foundation right, nothing else will, will be in place and, and the, the home will be in, unstable. So they, they, they lay that foundation and then um, and they, get, they put in their heart, you know, weeks doing that and then they lay that foundation. They go home for the day. They come back the next day, all right, and they just kind of sit around and kind of look at their foundation. Just kind of sitting there, a couple hours go by. The, the foreman comes along and says, hey, guys, what are you, what are you doing? You got to get back to work. You're like, let's, let's keep going. And they respond, hey, boss, uh, you know, we laid the foundation. That's the most important part, right? Like, that's what, that's, we need that. That's the most important part. We don't want to focus on other things like the walls and the roof and the windows and the door. Like, you know what? Then people might lose sight of the foundation. It's all about the foundation, boss. Like, that's why we're here. You see the folly of that. But many preachers today have done just that when it comes to the gospel. In order to retreat from applying all of the Bible to all of life, they have hid behind the gospel. They've neglected the edifice for the foundation. What an error they have made. The gospel is not meant to be the only thing we teach on. It is meant to be the foundation. Yes, it's the only foundation, but it's meant to be the foundation upon which we are to build a Christian worldview, a Christian life, a Christian home, a Christian church, a Christian civilization. It provides the basis for all other things relating to God's law word. One of the most powerful passages on this is in Hebrews chapter 5. The final passage I want to read, if you want to turn there, I want to read that passage. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. The gospel is the foundation that we are to build upon. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and I'll read just through 6, 3. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need for milk and not of strong drink. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perf unto perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. All right, on this passage, one author calls our attention to this. The conviction for us today is this. What lies in this What is considered milk in this passage? It is virtually everything we today consider to be the meat of theology. And this is a quote from Joel McDermott. It's what we consider the meat of theology, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of repentance, the doctrine of faith alone, the doctrine of baptism, the doctrine of laying on of hands, the doctrine of the resurrection, and the doctrine of final judgment. Kindergarten, all. That's what this author says, kindergarten, all. That's the basics. He goes on, these are the doctrines, the author says, are mere fundamentals and from which we need to leave and go on to maturity. Not leave in the sense that we neglect them, but we move on, we build upon them. In other words, he says, we don't really need another book on Christology or hell 
or the gospel, we need Christians to move on from these, what, foundations, foundations, end quote. The gospel, the gospel of grace is the basics of the word of God. Basic doesn't mean crude or banal. It means the essential foundation, the starting point. The author of Hebrews is telling us that we ought to be building upon this foundation and moving on, not forgetting it, but building upon it. Is it any wonder that we have such a lack of application of Christian doctrine in the home, the church, and the state, when our professing churches have either rejected the foundation, Calvinism, and have embraced the false gospel, or they're unwilling to build upon it? They have the right foundation, but they're unwilling to build upon it. One, they're unwilling to, to defend it against other false gospels. They're content just to say, well, I, I have, I, you know, we have the doctrines of grace and and, you know, God's been gracious to us, but other brothers haven't, you know, God hasn't, you know, we don't want to become across as elitist or, no, you got to call out a false gospel. And if anyone preaches a gospel, whether it's an angel from heaven or the apostle Paul, Paul pronounces a curse upon himself if he were to ever preach a false gospel. How could we possibly hope for success using such strategies? How can we have success if we won't build upon our foundation or if we don't even have the right foundation? And again, here are the unpleasant consequences, right, that Kevin Reed mentioned. There are entire seminary systems in our nation producing Christian leaders built upon the foundation of heresy. Whole denominations that hate the one true gospel of grace. How do we expect to have success if we've neglected the pure gospel, the doctrine of grace? We will not. And so as we pray for revival, we pray that the pure doctrine of the gospel would again be preached defended and false gospels will be called out for what they are, soul-damning heresies that take away from the work of Christ. Salvation is of the Lord, not of man. And so we are to build upon this foundation. It's a sad reality that, that there are teachers that hide behind the foundation and say, well, I don't want to go beyond the, the gospel. You know, It's just about the gospel. It's like that construction crew that never builds on their foundation, never builds a house, never builds a worldview, never builds a Christian society, because they're so focused on the foundation that they lose sight of what the foundation is for. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, as we read in Ephesians, that we might do good works, that we might respond to the gospel of grace, that we might apply God's law word to all of life. And until the false gospel of Arminianism is rejected in our land, we will not see revival. Final point of application, very briefly, is the pride of man in false conversion. This final point concerns one of the greatest banes upon the professing church that the false gospel of Arminianism has produced. False gospels can only produce what? False conversions. They, they can't produce a true one. All right? It's not the Arminianism gospel that saves someone. It may be the word of God in a congregation that is preaching a false gospel, but it is not the false gospel that produces a conversion. Now, as it relates to Arminianism, the man-centered gospel allows a person to think himself not that bad as he considers the claims of Christ. It allows him to think that he has entered the faith when he has not renounced every last shred of self-confidence and self-sufficiency. This is a recipe for a false conversion. However, if the pure doctrine of the gospel, the first mark of a true church, were preached from the pulpits, the pride of man would be attacked straightway and many false conversions would be avoided. A man may profess Christ and join a church so long as he can cling to a semi-Pelagian worldview. So long as he can hold on to the truth that, hey, his supposed truth that, hey, I'm not that bad deep down. 
but force him to behold the true gospel, the gospel of the doctrines of grace, and see how he may falter and hesitate on his claim to follow Christ. See how many may have not counted the cost of becoming a disciple of Christ. See how many may hate Calvinism more than they love Christ. See how many will balk at submitting to a God like that. And then you will see that many have entered the ranks of professing Christians via a false gospel. It takes humility to come to Christ, and the false gospel of Arminianism lessens the blow to man's pride that the true gospel delivers with power. And so when the Apostle Paul tells the churches in Galatia to reject a false gospel, we learn of the centrality of the gospel in the local church. Paul's writing to local churches, the churches of Galatia. If any come to you and preach a gospel of grace that is not laid out in Scripture, they preach a gospel that is not the gospel of grace laid out in Scripture, that person is accursed. Again, this is the word of God, it's not my word. May we apply Paul's instructions to the churches of Galatia and to our own churches in our day, and then we will see blessing and revival as the true gospel stands in opposition to the false gospel of men. As the true gospel is laid as the foundation and built upon with the application of God's law word to every area of life, if not, there can be no victory in the Great Commission, no victory in converting the nations if the foundation of a heretical gospel is laid. All, this, all these efforts to, to spread the gospel from these Arminian ministries, it's a fool's errand. It's a false gospel. It's just going to produce false converts. It's going to be the wrong foundation. They're not even probably going to try to build upon it because it's going to be so shallow and man-centered. But if the true gospel is preached, men and women, boys and girls will see themselves as utterly insufficient to contribute any good whatsoever to their salvation. And then, may God be pleased to bless the preaching of his word, save sinners, and help Christendom to move on to maturity, attacking the gates of hell with the application of God's word to every area of life. The first mark of a true church is the pure doctrine of the gospel. Let's behold it, embrace it, proclaim it, defend it, and build upon it. Join with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the pure gospel of the doctrine of grace. I thank you that you have entrusted your church with this message. I thank you that you have given clear descriptions of this gospel. You've laid it out for us in your word that we might refute any false gospel. I pray for revival in the land that the false gospel of Arminianism would be defeated, that men would see the truth that salvation is of the Lord and that you get all the glory, God, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and he will not be thwarted. He came to die for his sheep and he will be victorious. And I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and you would cause men to be bold and stand upon the truth and call out heresies and false gospels that are destroying souls and that you would be pleased to bless the preaching of your word for the glory of your name. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand upon the truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.